Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. Off Air with Jane and Fee is going live. We are taking to the stage at the amazing Crucible Theatre in Sheffield on Friday the 31st of May. It'll be a night full of surprises. We'll have a special guest, we'll involve you in the audience and we'll embarrass ourselves. You really won't want to miss it. Well, the surprises, we don't yet know what's in it, so it genuinely is a night of surprises. Well, you've surprised me already. Uh, It's not just us. Our live show is part of an exciting new podcast festival called Cross wires which is taking place in some really amazing venues across sheffield from the 31st of may to the 2nd of june so other podcasters that you'll be able to see include katie price Catherine ryan ramash ranganathan and the original adam buxton but there's also a whole host of free fringe events family shows surprise acts and after parties that jane and i haven't yet been invited to I'm sure it's only a matter of time head to crosswires.live for tickets and more information is the game football podcast from the times today a five-star showing from erling Haaland as manchester city make it through to the quarterfinals of the champions league with a 7-0 thrashing of rb leipzig just how good can he get we'll also be talking about trent alexander arnold's future at right back after liverpool's exit at the hands of real madrid we'll talk about the draw for the last date which includes three sides from italy can they cause a shock in this year's competition and we'll discuss the greatest performances on the european stage. This is the game. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, a five-star showing from Erling Haaland as Manchester City make it through to the quarterfinals of the Champions League with a 7-0 thrashing of RB Leipzig. Just how good can he get? We'll also be talking about Trent Alexander-Arnold's future at right back after Liverpool's exit at the hands of Real Madrid. We'll talk about the draw for the last date, which includes three sides from Italy. Can they cause a shock in this year's competition? And we'll discuss the greatest performances on the European stage. This is The Game. Hello, welcome again to The Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wizencroft, alongside Gregor Robertson, Ian Hawkey and Jonathan Northcroft, um, discussing a big week in terms of European football. But where do we begin? Well, obviously, we begin with a man named Erling Brought Haaland, who has defied the odds and, to be perfectly honest, is currently making fantasy look like reality, shifting the conversation and the whole football universe into a totally new paradigm. Manchester City swept past RB Leipzig seven goals to nil in the second leg at the Emirates to reach the Champions League quarterfinals and Haaland became the fastest and the youngest player to reach 30 goals in Europe's elite club competition. He's also the youngest player to score five times in a single Champions League game, joining, of course, the great Lionel Messi, but also Brazil forward Luis Adriano is the only other players to do so. He's only 22 years old, by the way, and he is on 39 goals in all competitions for the season. He's the first City player to do that in a single campaign. He's got five hat-tricks this season. That is three more than any other player in the big five leagues. And the one thing that I wanted to talk to you guys about is in an era 
where we've had so many false nines, is Erling Haaland going to make the genuine number nine fashionable again? What is making him so great? Jonathan? Probably talked about this before, but it's it's that sense of the guy that's almost been built in a in a lab to create the, the sort of ideal number nine. And and it's not just the physical prowess, but it's the positional intelligence. The number of times he gets into those right areas. And this playing for a team where he's had to adjust the style. So when he played for Dortmund, he was able to to get on the end of different sorts of moves, much more counter-attacking moves. But you see real intelligence of of, of movement. And then maybe the biggest thing of all is is actually his mentality and his appetite. It's that desire, that determination to to score, score again, score again. And it's also that ability to shrug off uh, missing chances and, and the negatives. And I, I saw him at Crystal Palace at the weekend. There were two moments where he was absolutely useless when he ballooned ahead and he, he scooped a finish over the bar. He still scored the winning goal, albeit from the spot. And it just didn't affect him. It didn't seem to matter to him that he missed these chances. He was back for more in, in that particular game. And then he goes and performs like he, he did on, on, on Tuesday night. There's that sense of unstoppability about him physically, but also mentally. He's just not satisfied no matter how much he scores. He is insatiable. Absolutely right. Um, Ian, have you seen anything like this? Um, are you one of those that maybe takes it with a pinch of salt? Or do you just revel in the fact that Haaland is doing what he's doing? No, I, no, I, 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 I think it's I think it's, uh, it's a joy in it. So I think we should enjoy it. And I think he is doing, I mean, he's clearly doing something quite unique for certainly a player of, of his generation. Um, and and I, I agree with Johnny. You cannot help but be impressed with his sort of studiousness his cleverness in making the right runs, being in the right places, and the patience that goes with that as well. We've talked quite a lot about the periods when he's not touching the ball, when he's not receiving the ball. And um, you have to have the right attitude to be able to deal with that, not let it affect you, move on to the next thing. I also really liked uh, the other night his his claiming responsibility. I, I forget which broadcaster he, he spoke to, but he, you know, he did the rounds. And, and he said... It was something like, you have to read between the lines. City have won four of the last five Premier Leagues. They didn't buy me for that. So they bought me for the Champions League. You know, that's that's you know, that's saying this is on me and, and I'm up to it and I'm and, and and I want to be the person who breaks that glass ceiling. You make such a figure out of him. Uh, it, it's about more uh, than just scoring goals. He has a higher purpose, Erling Haaland. I like it. Um what he's doing is is quite incredible, Gregor. When you were watching this game, it's not really bullying. I mean, it's not it's not fair to call it that, but he's he seems to provide on certain occasions such a, a danger in front of goals, such a high level of either finishing or just being in the right place or just, you know, at times unplayable. Even an early chance that he had in the game, which didn't go in the back of the net, you just saw that he was really up for it. And when he's really on his game, there, there can be no stopping him unless, I guess as has been alluded to by many, many others, uh, unless Manchester City just don't provide him with the service that he needs. But um, on this occasion, the ball was in the right place, he was in the right place, and it ended up in the back of the net on five occasions. And it was uh, it was, it was, was just silly to watch at times, I think. Yeah, it's, all, it's, it's almost jarring. It's like how, something about how spontaneous and almost like aggressive he is, <laughs> even when the ball drops at his feet and, you know, drop, or drops in his vicinity. He's lashing the ball home. It's like really impactful. And it's like that, that's probably something about his and his gargantuan frame and his massive levers and his strides and his his power. I think that's the word that sums him up. His power. You know, that's one part of it. I completely agree with what the guys are saying about his 
he's obviously fiercely intelligent as well. Like he's, he's, his interviews are becoming more and more sort of, he's really engaging to, to listen to as well. He's talking about the speed of thought in his mind is, is his, you know, Julian Lescott, I think it was asked him, that, you know, what's your super strength? And it kind of almost <laughs> put him on his, on his back foot. He's like, well, you know, I would say after scoring five goals, it's goals. <laughs> that's, that's, that's obviously my strength. But then he went on to say that it's about the, it's the speed of, speed of thought he's sort of not in fact almost not having to think and that's what you see when you see the ball fall close to him he's, there's no thought there's no fear there's no am I gonna am I gonna hit this in that corner or in that corner it's just whack he absolutely it's just so instinctive so that's the thing that's really you know really incredible to watch I think coupled with his power and the way you know as has been said he uh, I think for the second goal he just he hounded and harried uh, won the ball back and then he was there to to stick in the header after De Bruyne's shot. Remarkable, remarkable. And some of the stats as well. Like we've heard some of them, but I read somewhere that he, it's taken him 19 games to score four Premier League hat tricks, and Ruud van Nistelrooy was the next quickest to four in 65 games. <laughs> He's had a total of 623 touches in the Premier League, meaning he scored one goal in every two every 22 touches. So we've spoken about that all season. How few touches he has in games. Like if you're scoring a goal every 22 touches of the ball, it's, you know, I think ultimately end of the season, it's not going to matter. It's interesting you mentioned Ruud van Nistelrooy um, there because I think he was maybe the last of an age of a, a centre forward, particularly in the Premier League, who was just about scoring goals. Maybe Jamie Vardy as well. But, but, but essentially what I'm saying is so many number nines that we've seen um, of recent times, maybe since Didier Drogba have to have an all-round game and we've seen so many strikers, you know, needing to lead the line on their own. You know, the one up front means that you need to have a bigger range, if you like, of, of assets. You know, you, you can't just be a goal scorer. You got to, and, and that, I guess, was pointed uh, at Haaland when he first came. Oh, is he going to link play? You know, is he is he doing enough of that? You know, and then, you, of course, you got everyone saying, has he made Manchester City worse, of course, which I think we've we've now fully got an answer to, uh, the answer clearly being being no. But I can't think of an era where, you know, we, we were recently talking about um, a lack of genuine number nines, you know, top tier number nines. People were saying there's a handful. They weren't even putting Harry Kane or Romelu Lukaku in the top bracket, the top tier of number nines. And those of us of a certain age, you know, we're talking about just England alone having six 30-goal strikers, you know, not being able to fit them all in the squad, let alone in the team. You know, it was just, I know it was a different era of football, but what I'm saying is number nines who were just about scoring goals seemed very common. And um, I'm not trying to take away from Haaland's game, but he seems to be a throwback. He seems to be a number nine. It was just all about putting the ball in the back of the net, not worrying about too much else. And I'm now thinking about what the playgrounds will be like, Jonathan, and whether it will be all about you know, being like Haaland, you know, players that just care desperately about smashing the ball into the back of the net. And I personally think that would be a great thing for football. No yeah. more false nines. I'm in that party. No, I think he does connect with kids here. Uh, it's funny, my, I've, I've got two girls and they're of that, you know, nine, they're eight and 10. And they're of that sort of generation where I mean, kids follow individuals as much as teams. And the players that interest them are Haaland, Rashford, maybe Harry Kane a little bit, but it's the younger ones. It, it, it's the, it's the, I don't know, it's that ability to, there's something childlike about Erling Haaland. He will inspire people uh, to, to, you know, young, youngsters to, to, to sort of focus a little bit differently uh, on, on what they want to be. And 
couple of things come to mind. One, um, speaking to some of the lads that were on Man City's uh, pre-season tour and watch, got to watch training a little bit. And they, they said they were watching the Rondos and Haaland was hopeless. He was absolutely useless to the point that the other players were kind of laughing at how, how, how poor he was at those exercises. And, and yet, you know, finishing drills and, and on the pitch, unbelievable, completely different. So he's just such an un-Guardiola player, of course. And then Guardiola on, on Saturday at Crystal Palace was saying that he wants to be remembered as the coach that 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 made Haaland the better footballer, the, the broader footballer, which I thought was an interesting thing for him to say because although it, on the one hand it sort of suggests I still want him to be my type of player, I think there was a tacit part to that where Pep was also saying, the thing that he's really good at, I'm not meddling with that. I'm not changing that. You know, I, I just want to round him in, in other ways. But, you know, I've bought him for this thing that he's brilliant at and that's what he's going to keep doing. And if I can add little bits around the side, I'll have done my job. And, and we're talking about a player that's, that's, that, that's, that's 22 and, and they're so young, but, but history tells us or experience tells us that as strikers move through their 20s, they score more and more and more. So... You know, I'm not the first person to say this, but you just wonder where it's going to stop, Alan, in terms of numbers and all that kind of stuff. It, um, it's great for football in a way that he's picked up, you know, I, I hate to say it, as, as, as many social media channels and as many TV channels as try and force the Al Nasir highlights down my throat. It, to be perfectly honest, you know, Cristiano Ronaldo's era is over and it's good to see someone picking up the mantle in the shape of, of Erling Haaland. And, and what I mean is, in football, you know, you, you think about Lionel Messi as well and when he might stop, but you're thinking about going to the ground and hoping to witness something, you know, beyond exceptional. You know, and that was it with Messi and Ronaldo. People would show up, you know, witnessing greatness, almost wanting to to go home with a story that they talk about, you know, for the next 30 or 40 years and they can say, I went to see this player once and he did this, you know, incredible thing, whatever it might be, score five goals and... um. It's good to see Haaland immediately fill that void. And, you know, like I say, what he's doing is incredible. But it was actually interesting after the game to see so many people saying, wow, he's moving into the kind of numbers that Messi and Ronaldo put up for years. You know, it was a weird kind of juxtaposition because it felt like you were seeing something special. And even, you, you know, I've already mentioned Messi's name on the podcast. He scored five games and five goals in a Champions League game. And you're thinking, wow, OK, Haaland's done it too what will the future hold for him? You know, and, and it was an exceptional performance and it was kind of jaws on the floor at times. And and the only thing that was annoying for me, Ian, was Pep Guardiola making him come off after five because I was like, come on, six, the double hat-trick in a Champions League knockout game. That would be ridiculous. So, so just tell me why you think Pep Guardiola is such a party pooper because he says he's got to leave his young striker with a target. I'd hate that if I was Haaland. I don't know. Apparently he's had his heart broken by Julia Roberts. So maybe he was in a... Jilted. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Totally jilted. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I would say that Pep um, comes out of um, Tuesday night looking quite a canny man manager, not necessarily for the Holland decision, but for actually quite, you know, quite, I would say more than likely criticising Kevin De Bruyne before the game and then watching Kevin De Bruyne be the most magnificent Kevin De Bruyne that we know. So, you know, I, I think if, if Pep was trying to motivate, just stimulate the the Holland hunger, then then you know he was acting according to his own confident interest, or um, his own confident 
confidence in his motivational skills for 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 seeing De Bruyne react so well to a little slight, to a little denial of praise, denial of opportunity. Yes, Ian. Okay, that's an interesting view. Um, uh, Gregor, listen, we spoke about a seven nil recently. I won't mention who 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 was involved in that. I don't want to relive the past, but um, I did say on that previous podcast that if any team is to win seven nil then the opposition have to play a big part in that. Um, so as great as it was for Erling Haaland, and, you know, people say I throw negativity on, in all the time, but RB Leipzig played a part in this as well, didn't they? So did they just play into Manchester City's hands tactically? What went wrong for them on the night? Yeah, I mean, they were they were awful. The goalkeeper, Yanis uh, Blaswich in particular, was just woeful with the ball at his feet. And, you know, it's one of those where you understand that they want to build play from the back and they want to, you know, get the goalkeeper... Trying to trying to pick out midfielders or clip it to the fullbacks, but if he's not good enough <laughs> doing it, you know, I, I look at look, I don't see them every week. I, maybe he is, and he had an off day, but it just invited City on to them in waves and waves. And um, Pep Guardiola spoke quite kind of quite openly actually afterwards about some of his decisions about playing Silva on the right to kind of because he felt that Leipzig's left hand side Guardiola and Ra- and Raum were were really strong, and that was an area in the first game where they kind of. They, they got out quite uh, too easily, particularly in the second half. And he thinks that Silva's one of the most sort of intelligent players at pressing and knowing when to press and knowing how to, to kind of close off angles in European football, he said, really. He said, there's no other player like Silva at that. So I think, and, and, and as Ian alluded to, his kind of motivation of De Bruyne, I think we saw that. So there was, it was certainly a, an interesting night for, for Guardiola and, to, and everything went right. But you have to say Leipzig were, were shocking. Just to, to to continue playing that way, even after they'd gone two or three goals behind, was just uh, madness in my view. So, uh, look, we've got to say as well, as much as this was an incredible night, and they're just beating the the third the team were third in the German Bundesliga seven nil in the Champions League round of sixteen. I don't, you know, is that I'm not entirely sure how healthy that is either. Look, it was a one off night maybe, but they swept them aside, and I think they scored six against them. And in a past uh, meeting as well at the Etihad so we've spoken a lot about the, the Super League and whether it's already here in, in the Premier League and, and uh, this was another piece of evidence to, to suggest it might be Ian do you agree with that? Uh, yes yeah I, I, I do I, I, I mean Leipzig were it, they they really they capitulated didn't they and they, they they had no answers and as Gregor said their plan A which is to is to is to build from the back once that once that was stymied uh they really had no answers and you could actually see you could see uh particularly with Guardiola, just the confidence draining from him at the end and you know this is a really a really fine player who has been you know at the peak of his powers recently but there are nights when city can do that to to opposition just leave them utterly bewildered and 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 without answers i would say and they you know they didn't use this as an excuse the penalty was uh, was a pretty Pretty dispiriting start for them, um, and and you know I think they were they were slightly justified in thinking that it was very very soft indeed. Um, and then you know once once City were one 0 up, then boom, that was that was it. Are they favourites? Did they send a message, Manchester City, about who might win this Champions League? Because for a lot of people, there's been no standout, Johnny. We know what Manchester City are capable of. They've shown us that in this game, but they haven't exactly played that way throughout the season. So. I wonder if maybe they're going up a gear for the Champions League. Maybe this is a sign that they're putting more emphasis on that competition. Yeah, they've actually been 
better in terms of consistency in the Champions League than the, than the Premier League. And I, th- I think for a couple of seasons, actually, we've seen a, a, a team that's learned how to play Champions League football. I, I, I actually, yeah, I give them last season as a, as a pass because that was just an exceptional Real Madrid team in terms of, of its ability to, to find results in any circumstances. They did it not just to City, but, but to Chelsea and, and, and obviously at Liverpool. So I didn't see last season as a continuum of, you know, the, the City can't do it in Europe. Pep Guardiola can't do the Champions League narrative. I, I think that they've, I think they've got there as, as a really reliable Champions League team. And I think they are favourites. I don't think they should shy from that. They should embrace that. They should expect to win it. They should have those expectations. I think going back to our conversation about Haaland, I think that's, the mentality that he's trying to exude. Um, it does feel a slightly more open year because, you know, City are favourites and they're a team that hasn't won it before. So so there's an openness to that. And, you know, Napoli are the outstanding, you know, newcomers, X factor in the competition. And then you look at Bayern and, and Real Madrid and nobody's making the most incredible convincing case. But why shouldn't, why should, put it this way, put City against any other team and you don't, Think that that other team's favourites to to win the game. You'd think it'd be City, so they have to they have to believe in that. And and I I I, I suspect this is the year they'll do it. We also saw things in this game that you'll never see in the Premier League, like a team playing a high line at the start, and Nathan Aki played two balls in behind for Haaland. Actually, found Haaland's runs in behind, which rarely happens in the Premier League. <laughs> Part of that is because, as I say, the teams don't afford them that opportunity very often. So there is something about the sort of stature and quality of the opposition who are not going to be so kind of submissive and sit back and, and try and hit them in a counter or soak up pressure, you know, that may well be to City's advantage. So I, I kind of agree. I think this team are, are, are better placed to, to go far in the in the Champions League than they, than they have been have been before really I think that's an interesting one for me I think there's weaknesses in this Manchester City team as we've seen plenty of times so far um, in the Premier League and I know there might be a slightly different tactical setup I know they've got a fantastic squad I still think they're susceptible and I still think that the Champions League has something over City it's an intangible for me I can't understand why we just at times even in the, the, the final for example you know, games where they absolutely dominated one leg, you know, a huge comeback for Real Madrid last year. We've we've seen better City teams than this not win the Champions League. Let's put it that way. Granted, we may have seen a stronger field in the Champions League. And I'm not going to say they're not one of the favourites, but I still think we're going to have to see something different. Even after the 7-0, we're going to have to see something better from Manchester City if they're going to win the Champions League. I'm not going to say they can't do it because they clearly can, but, you know, sounds weird to say after a 7-0, I still think all-round performance against, you know, one of the best teams in Europe, you know, they haven't had that in the key matches and um, and they'll need to. I, I still think they'll need to do that if they're going to win the Champions League, but there you go. We shall see what, what Guardiola and his team do. Very, very good night, obviously, for Erling Haaland. So congratulations to him. Let's talk about Liverpool next, though. Jurgen Klopp, quite philosophical after their Champions League exit. He does say they have a massive task to be back in the competition next year. Big defeat over the two legs, if you like, 
5-2 in the first leg at Anfield. Karen Benzema's late goal at the Bernabeu made it Liverpool's biggest ever Champions League aggregate defeat. Liverpool were winners in 2019. They, of course, were runners-up last year and they might not even be in the Champions League next season unless their form picks up. Although, they are six points behind fourth-place Spurs with a game in hand, so it's not exactly a mountain to climb at this point in time. But I, I know a lot of people are concerned with how Liverpool have been playing and I think it has been seen as a transitional time for Liverpool. But as the season's worn on, Johnny, I think people have looked at the squad and thought, even though we've signed some good players, there still needs to be a bit of a mini overhaul, particularly of the midfield, certain positions where Liverpool need to strengthen. them. And um, you're almost wondering if, if Klopp is going to force the club's hand to be able to do that. And if this summer they are going to kind of rejuvenate that side how much do you think they need it? The, the more the season's worn on, the more obvious it becomes. And Klopp actually, it was missed at the time, but at the end of last season, before the Champions League final, Klopp was talking about building a new team. He's seen this coming. He didn't have the money to do it last year. He needs to be able to do it this year. It's as simple as that. I think today there's been indication that Oxlade-Chamberlain will follow Roberto Firmino uh, in leaving. I think Naby Keita... Is another one that's that's very likely to leave. There's there's a few players around the fringes of that squad who who may possibly move on as well. You think of your your uh, Curtis Jones or your Phillips Williams, maybe Joel Matip. It's time for him to move as well. You're starting to talk about a real overhaul, and of course, it centres on what they do in midfield. I think that is the the the, the crux. You know, going in against Real Madrid when you're trying to overturn that kind of deficit at the Bernabeu with the midfield of Fabinho and James Milner, to me, said everything really about where Liverpool are. The complicated thing for them is that they're not alone in looking to refresh and spend money, that that, that they'll be they'll face a Manchester City who keeps spending, they'll face a Man United that will keep spending. Goodness knows what Chelsea are going to do, but you can't rule out another splurge. And what they, what they did last year clearly was with limited resources, decided to target the top end of the pitch and, and refresh the forward line. And this summer, it, the midfield's a project. I think there's a worry about them forward reinforcements that they brought in. I think £160 million when you add up Jota, Diaz, Nunes and, and Gakpo. And that worry is simply that that none of these are bad players, they're good players, but but they're trying to replace what is one of the best forward lines we've ever seen in, in, in English football. And simply... They're trying to be as good as Mane and 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 Firmino in his in his prime and and Salah when he the other two were working with them and Nunes I keep coming back to Nunes I think a lot of people come back to Nunes you can see the player that's there and you can see the the potential you can see why they've bought him but the reality is if Liverpool have bought a player that still needs time he still needs a couple of years I think and he's twenty four you know he's he, he's 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 approaching twenty four he's twenty three but approach twenty four. You know, he's older than Haaland. He's the same age. He's more or less the same age as Mbappe and Osimhen. He has got the ability to get into the the real elite band, but he's not there yet. So, and Gakpo needs time as well. So, what they've done is they've they've, they've left themselves without. You know, they need to at the same time as transitioning, buying new midfielders. They need to also work on adapting the the, the expensive forwards they've invested in. And, all of that adds up to a period where you see there's no quick fix for Liverpool, that it's going to be a period of flux. 
And even if they have a good window by Jude Bellingham in the summer, I don't think that automatically transforms them back into title contenders. I, I think this is more likely to be a further year of, of transition for Liverpool, whatever they do in that window. Yeah, I mean, some are, some are kind of saying this is the this might be the end of of uh, what could have been a huge dynasty, which I kind of think is maybe a little bit premature. I do think there are some good players at Liverpool, and you've mentioned them already, um, Johnny. But but some are asking after this game: Has Jurgen Klopp been too loyal to some of the older players in his squad to keep them there for so long and not you know go for youth and and regeneration a little bit earlier on? And I'll ask again: if, You know, if Klopp really needs to force the hand of the club a bit like he did with Van Dijk and Allison, you know, bringing in two key players. Does he really need to try and force the hand of a club, which may change hands, which may see big new investment come in, but the, to get him the players that he really needs to take this team forward. Ian, what do you think? Um, yes. Uh, yeah. He. Uh, well, certainly they, they need to uh, recruit. Um, you know, you, if, <laughs> if anyone's going to have the authority to loosen the purse strings um it will be it will be Klopp and and you would trust uh his vision of what of what this team needs uh yeah I, I think you know I, he's been he's been ruthless in the past he's been ruthless in his career so I think the the over loyalty thing is sometimes uh a bit exaggerated and it tends to get attached to to managers who've been at the same club for a long time because they develop a very deep knowledge of what players are are capable, but that doesn't mean they're they're being overly affectionate or sentimental towards them. Yeah, I don't think he's been over loyal. I think Milner's the kind of freak of nature still to be playing at this level at that. You know, when he's when he's uh, when he needs to be called upon. And look, obviously, Klopp would rather not to have to call upon him. And elsewhere, you know, still the kind of elder statesman or this we're getting towards Salah and. Fabinho's had a really bad year. Like he's twenty nine. I looked at that. I said a few weeks ago that I was thinking he looked like his his legs have gone a little bit. But I don't think that can be the case. I I just think that they need they need impactful signings. Like you know, Johnny's absolutely bang on. There's a lot of been a lot of signing and recruitment. You know, with kind of development and the future in mind. And it looked for so long as though the evolution of Liverpool's front three uh, was going to be really smooth. Um, and then Sadio Mane said he wanted to leave. And then suddenly it looked like these players who were brought in to kind of, you know, slowly uh, find their way into Liverpool's team had to be ready to 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 live up to something extraordinary uh, very quickly. And while all that was going on behind them, the kind of the energy in midfield of, of pre- previous seasons, the kind of bedrock of Van Dijk uh, at the back that started to kind of to crumble a little bit. So it's all you know. There's been a lot of issues for Liverpool this year, but what what they undoubtedly need are a couple of impactful signings. I think at centre half and in centre midfield, uh, and I think otherwise, there's still this is still a squad with like, like room for development and is capable of, of competing at the top end of Europe and the top end of the Premier League. I think it's a couple of really big signings that would that would bring them back to that level. Are we all kind of at the at the feeling now that Liverpool are a little bit off being a side, and I don't mean this season, over the next couple of seasons that will challenge for the biggest titles, a Premier League title, a Champions League title, or do we feel like if, as Gregor mentioned there, they get a couple of key players, they can still be that team? It's just an off-season, Ian? Uh, no, I, I wouldn't be as hasty as that, actually. I, I think, um, you know, I think the... 
the cumulative fatigue issue has been very apparent, you know, from last season's exhausting schedule and, and coming into this this dislocated Winter World Cup season. So I think that's a factor and you would you would imagine that that, that will be um, eased by by August, September. And yep, yeah, yeah, you know, but uh, you you don't want to put everything on a missing person, but you know, Luis Diaz will 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 should will and should make them them better. So no, I wouldn't I wouldn't say that, that we're now into into a long era of managed decline at all. You, you they've they've you know they've come back before from from indifferent uh, domestic seasons. Um and you know but basically it's 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 a well run club um and well managed. So then what next? Um Jonathan I was listening to Jamie Carragher a little bit earlier on talking about Trent Alexander-Arnold at right back. He was dribbled past six times in the game. That's more than any other player has been in a single match in the Champions League so far this season, if that's a stat that matters. But it was interesting to hear Carragher say that he he almost feels as if Trent Alexander-Arnold's time as a, a, a Liverpool right back might be coming to an end in terms of he's great when Liverpool are that dominant team that's going to win the biggest trophies and they're always on the front foot. He's the perfect right back for that situation. But if they're going to be a bit like his teams were, a, a team that is hunting down fourth place, a team that, that isn't necessarily one of the best around, that they need to have a more defensive right back and that his position may be elsewhere on the pitch, which, you know, a lot of Liverpool fans say, you know, there are others, supporters of other teams who are too critical of Trent Alexander-Arnold. If you like, this is someone who loves Liverpool saying exactly what a lot of fans and, you know, pundits and players of other clubs have been saying for, for quite some time. It's not really good enough at this level. So what happens next to Trent? I understand where Carragher's coming from in all honesty. And I was watching last night's game, expecting my phone to ping with a message from David Walsh because me and, me and Walsh, you've got an ongoing debate about Trent where he's in the Reese James camp and I'm in the Trent camp in terms of who's a better talent and... Um, Every time Trent has an aberration, I tend to get a message from, from David. I didn't last. Maybe he was maybe he was busy with Cheltenham, but it was a horrendous performance. Um, and the, the number of times he just decided his mind seemed to be elsewhere, while Vinicius Junior was lurking uh, off his shoulder, was 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 frightening. And he doesn't seem to show signs that 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 side of his game, that ability to smell danger, which is Carragher used to say, the quotes of smelling danger as, as a defender. Uh, it, that doesn't seem to be developing in him. So I get what he's saying that if Liverpool aren't dominating the territory and the ball, they they need they probably do need different types of defenders. The only thing that the the, the contrary to that is that we've this is a season where we've seen Sinchenko play in all sorts of areas of the pitch in an outstanding way for Arsenal. I think even developing the the Guardiola idea, the fullback roaming in the midfield. Now, surely there's nobody better equipped to do that than 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 Trent in the right team when 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 things are are are, are going. So I do I do wonder if Liverpool fixed their midfield problems a little bit more and were able to play a bit higher up the pitch, whether we wouldn't be having this debate. I think Carragher's point is appropriate for right now when you're chasing fourth. But ideally, if you're building Liverpool, I don't see the harm and in fact I'd see the 
assets, the benefits. Keep Trent, dominate the ball, get him into the midfield, get him to do what he's done for the last two or three years. I don't think he's lost that part of the game, but maybe we haven't, even Trent fans like me are having to accept now that he's not going to fill out as a defender. You know, he kind of is what he is for, for good and bad, but the good is still incredible. I think it's worse. I think he's, he's regressed. I think he has a bit of a complex. Mm. <laughs> like, I don't want to get too deep about it, but I think you can see, like, I, I've been a fullback and there are times where he's so square on, it's like, and he's he's, he's left, he's almost, as Vinicius flicks the ball past him, he's left grappling, completely square on, grappling with his arms. That's a kind of place of fear. It is, it's a place of fear. He doesn't, he doesn't back himself, so he wants to, he wants to just come, like, play as safe as possible and then once he's gone past them it's like he's grappling at, th- at thin air he's grappling at his shoulders first and then he's grappling at thin air I think it's like the whole debate is actually I, I might be wrong but I th- it, it looks to me as if it's almost got into his head I think he's a worse defender than he was two seasons ago uh, and look it's true that he's playing in a team now that's exposed more often that's all absolutely true but we're talking about we're not just talking about positional flaws we're talking about being able to deal with 1v1 situations against some of the best players in Europe and he can't do it at the moment he can't do it and that's a big problem I, I agree I, mean, what, I watched this game last night and I thought I used to hate that whole debate about Trent Alexander-Arnold he should be playing in midfield he's got yeah. he's got more, more to offer than a fullback I thought nonsense he offers more than any fullback has ever done like in terms of attack and output but now I think it, it might be it might be the best way forward simply because he's not got the tools to do the other side of the game uh, and you need to have them at the top level so it's a, it is an interesting time for, for Trent Alexander-Arnold and look if Liverpool are firing on all cylinders again this, the debate about this would, would quieten a little bit again but I still think fundamentally when it comes to defending in those 1v1 situations he's not got it I was uh, listening to Gregor I was remembering the opening game of the season actually when I had the privilege of sitting next to Gregor for Liverpool's first Premier League game at, at Craven Cottage, and um, and I was there, you know, uh, typing away, and I just got this little nudge to me, and I thought about a goal kick, you know, defending the Hammersmith end, and Gregor said, "Look where Trent is," and sure enough, he was nearer to Hammersmith roundabout than his own goal. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I do know that Gregor um, observes Trent very closely, and 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 obviously brilliantly. Um, I just wanted to ask um, Gregor and, and Johnny, there used to be the theory that, that Trent would evolve into a central midfielder or you know, to the right of midfield or something. Is that still workable? Is that a way that that Liverpool solve the positional sense problem at right back, but also solve the, the midfield rebuild that, that they, they are going to have to do? I think it is workable, actually. Ian and um, there's no better, you know, no one's better place to help that transition um, than, than Pep Linders, who at youth team level was the coach that was playing in as a number six, and it was only when he stepped into the first team environment that he went to to right back. So if if, if they're gonna, you know, with Fabinho declining and with Thiago maybe as another one who who's maybe come at the end of his time, then then yes, that might be that might be a logical conclusion. I, I guess what you're turning your back on, though, is what what you know I mentioned earlier, which is that idea that the one of your fullbacks can be the the guy that gives you one you know different shape um, building up than 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 out of possession, um, which is an idea that's been exploited so well by other coaches. If you turn your back on that and go go some more traditionally, then then yeah, I mean he he's always looked like he could. 
he could play there. And it is a slight curiosity to me that, that Klopp hasn't tried it a bit more. Absolutely bang on about the, the whole kind of Zinchenko idea. And there was moments in the first half where he did actually drift into that inside midfield position. The only thing is if that's a kind of, fundamentally that means changing the way Liverpool play and it also would reduce what Andy Robertson offers on the on the other side. So it's that's a kind of a bigger question about how Liverpool want to play. And the the thing the the, the point that Ian made um, at Fulham, it, it's true. He plays in a unique, in a, a kind of pretty unique team. There's this was about that was Trent closing down. I think Anthony Robinson, the left back, like from a goal kick. So he's asked to he is asked to to push so high and he's left exposed. But when all that's said and done, it's still the the fundamental aspect of being a fullback is sometimes you the winger, the player you're asked to face up, gets the ball in a bit of space and he runs at you and when that that situation occurs now there is very little faith in Trent Alexander-Arnold stopping that winger or stopping the cross or not being beaten and that also spreads through the, through the team through your teammates other people try and get closer to try and you know to try and cover them and that creates space elsewhere so it's it's an issue and that I, I just haven't seen enough evidence in those situations that Trent Alexander-Arnold is, is, is a good enough 1v1 defender A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Rising sea levels, extreme weather patterns, extinctions of species. Our planet needs protecting. I'm Adam Vaughan, the Environment Editor for The Times, and this is Planet Hope from The Times, in partnership with Rolex and its Perpetual Planet Initiative. In this podcast, we hear from leading experts from around the world who are committed to finding solutions. These explorers, scientists, entrepreneurs and citizens are committed to a common goal, to protect our home, Earth. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, let's have a quick look at the names in the hat for tomorrow's draw, Friday morning. So we are speaking on Thursday morning. Bayern are in, uh, the only German side there. There's Benfica of Portugal, Chelsea, Inter Milan, Manchester City, AC Milan, Napoli and Real Madrid. Ian, three Italian sides into the Champions League quarterfinals for the first time since the 2005-2006 season. How, How big is that for football in Italy? Can they possibly win it as well? Yep, three Italian clubs, four Italian managers. We're back in the old days. Yeah, no, I think there's yeah, there's a fair amount of uh, self congratulation. There's quite a lot of joy as well um, in a lot of the country that Juventus aren't one of those clubs. Yeah, the interesting thing is how many goals did these Italian clubs concede in the last sixteen stage between them? And then the answer is zero. So we really are back in the old days. Although we're not actually 
in the way that they're playing. Um, Syria is 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 a pretty entertaining league these days, um, as most observers will know. I don't think um, AC Milan are going to win the Champions League. I don't think Inter are either. But I I, I genuinely think that that we have a very good chance of getting a new name on the cup. Uh, now we say that's regularly because City and PSG are usually in the mix at this stage, but but I think Napoli really, really do have a chance if they continue to play the way they are. If they don't get big injuries, um, they can really pace themselves because they're so clear at the top of, of Syria. Um, so they, they have all but won uh, the domestic title. Um, and, and, you know, they really are fabulous to to watch. They know what they're good at and, and they, they really do tear teams apart. So, yeah, I, I, I think Napoli really are, all things being equal, in with a shout, provided that they they avoid City principally, possibly Bayern Munich in the, in the next round. Ian, are Bayern up for the task, do you think? Um, in, in terms of winning it, I think people were impressed with how they dealt with Paris Saint-Germain. I'm yet to see a side a bit like Manchester City that I think, you know, they are definitely going to win it. And of course, we know there's potential there. What are you making of their season so far? Well, um, they found it. Um, they found it both perplexing in terms of, uh, I guess, management issues um, and unusually uh, stressful in terms of, of of winning the title, which they would still still be favourites for. But it, you know, it has got has got quite tight at the top. So that's that's taking a bit more out of them. And you know, you can you can go through it. They're missing their captain and goalkeeper because he decided to go skiing after the World Cup. There's been yeah, there's been all sorts of sort of off-field fireworks. Um, uh, but uh, as you say, uh, what not just their management of Paris Saint Germain in the in the first knockout round, but um, the way they were they 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 they've mastered uh, the group stage. They you know they they do know how to how to deal with this competition and. Yes, well, there are flaws, and you can sometimes see that they might be missing Lewandowski. They've got really good strength in depth, you know, and they've 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 got a bit of pace. Um, and when that midfield axis of Kimmich and Goretzka functions, it's quite difficult to get through. So, uh, but yeah, but I, I would I would I would certainly put them behind City in terms of their their credentials and potential to to go all the way, but but. But, but not that far behind. And Benfica, a dark horse in this? I know someone said that to me previously. Do you think they can uh, do something special this year? Uh, they already are doing something special this year. You know, they're, 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 their record across competitions is, is, is spectacular. And, you know, when you, when you think that they're doing this without Enzo Fernandes, um, it's, it's really impressive. Uh, yeah, yeah, a dark horse, perhaps, you know, perhaps not much more than that. You have a scenario where the semi-finals are going to look, you know, quite fresh potentially. If were Benfica to beat, uh, sorry, to come up against Napoli, for instance, we'd have a we'd have a name that we uh, we don't often see at that stage, and certainly have never seen um, with Napoli. So, I, I, yeah, it's like it 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 it's it's it, it's easy to say this, but it, it it does look it does look a bit refreshed and and open. I've got to say, I've made my own draw. Um, just before we started the podcast, if you're listening on Friday, this is not the real draw for the Champions League. We're speaking 24 hours before it's been made. Let me make that very clear. But um, I, I went on something called randomresult.com. So if this is exactly the same tomorrow, 
then UEFA use it as well, okay? Um, because I've got Milan against Chelsea, Man City against Bayern, Real Madrid against Benfica, and Napoli against Inter. That is the way this random generator has seen uh, the quarterfinal draws go. And and to be honest, I think the quarterfinal draw of the Champions League is probably the best one around, in my opinion, just because, mm. you know, you usually get some really mouth-watering ties you know, obviously when you get to the semi-final, you know, it's it's all there for you in terms of, of what you think might happen. And maybe it's not as exciting. This one, as the names get pulled out of the hat, you're like, wow, what a tie, what a tie, what a tie. So um, really looking forward to it and we'll see who the teams get tomorrow. But I would be devastated if I had to watch Milan play Chelsea on another two occasions. So hopefully that does not happen again. a bit of a European special this time around. I want to talk to you guys about a piece that you can read in The Times. Our writers have shared their memories of some of the best individual virtuoso performances on the big stage in the Champions League of the modern era. Um, Some of the best individual performances from the likes of Roy Keane, Steven Gerrard, for example, Wayne Rooney and Gregor Robertson. No, not Gregor Robertson, but Gregor Robertson, you have chosen. An unlikely name. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, look, I'm standing by it too. I went for David Marshall for Celtic in 2004 in a UEFA, UEFA Cup last 16 game against Barcelona at the new Camp. And the reason I went for it is, look, there, were, there are undoubtedly better players and better performances uh, in this list, which is, which is great fun. I would urge anyone to, to go and read it. But I don't think any of them changed the player's life quite so profoundly as it did for David Marshall because this is a guy who it was three weeks after his 19th birthday and in the first leg Rab Douglas was mistakenly sent off Rab Douglas the Celtic goalkeeper was mistakenly sent off following like a, a, a half-time fracas in the tunnel um, he was actually just trying to restrain uh, Bobo Baldi and if anyone remembers Bobo Baldi that was no mean feat so but he was sent off and so Marshall played the the, the second 45 against uh, Barca in the first leg and kept a clean sheet and he uh, went through with a 1-0 lead. But that meant he was playing. It was his second ever start. His first start was a League Cup game against Partick Thistle at Fur Hill. And as I say, he was three weeks after his 19th birthday. And he put in the performance of his lifetime, like of his entire lifetime, of any any moment, <laughs> any game still to come. And that includes the, the penalty save against Serbia, uh, which which was will always be remembered very fondly for sending Scotland to the Euros. Martin O'Neill said afterwards that his teammates gave him a standing ovation in the changing room, and he said it's all downhill from here. Uh, you should pack it in and retire tonight. Um, and <laughs> I don't think he was he was far wrong because this honestly save after save, ninety minutes uh, kept a clean sheet against a team with Xavi. Uh, Puyol, Luis Enrique, Mark Overmars, Ronaldinho, like peak Ronaldinho, and save after save. One, the, my favourite was a a little clip in behind by Xavi and um, Luis Enrique was running through to it and a volley from like point blank range and he remarkable agility to tip over the crossbar. He just would not be beaten. And that was it. He was an overnight sensation. He was into the Scotland team. He was uh, Celtic's number one. Um, it didn't last, but it changed his life that game, and it's still a game that any uh, follower of Celtic in in, the, in European football remembers very fondly. Johnny, what did you go for? Well, I, I must admit, my my 
it's a sort of lack of attention for, to detail on my part because I've misread the, the request for this piece as best Champions League performances. So I went for Wayne Rooney in, um, in, in 2004 when he made his United debut. I was there that night at, at Old Trafford. And it, it's just hard to, you've got to put yourself back in, in that era when and who Rooney was at that point, this, this, this teenage force of nature uh, that, that with whom anything seemed possible. There was a Haaland-like feeling about him, but he was a more you know complete player, like should we say, at that age. It was his debut for United. He hadn't played since year 2004. He had never played in European club football before, and he scored one of the best hat-tricks you'll, you'll ever see. First clipped into the top corner after Fenestroy sent him through. Second, a bit of skill to beat the, the Fenerbahce captain and, and, and put the ball in the bottom corner, and then barged Ryan Giggs out of the way to bend home a free kick. And it was just one of those wow moments. I remember you know, driving home, getting the editor on the phone at 11 o'clock at night, uh, you know, saying, drop your plans for the rest of the week. This is this is what you'll be writing about um, for, for, for Sunday. That was incredible. But when I say lack of attention to detail, Wayne's performance is probably, you know, only the second most memorable individual performance after Peter Weir against Ipswich Town for Aberdeen in 1981. Uh, and, <laughs> and the UEFA Cup, <laughs> and it was um, it was just mesmerising. Uh, Ipswich with the UEFA Cup holders, Bobby Robson in charge. This is Fergie's first big European triumph, and uh, Peter Weir was just such a mercurial player. He could, on his day, was just unplayable. One of those winners didn't wasn't always his day, but he took apart McMills in a way you just you know doesn't shouldn't happen. Doesn't happen to a fifty cap England defender just couldn't couldn't get in and went outside and went inside and scored from the edge of the box a couple of times. Did the same to Manny Couch in the European Super Cup a few years later. So there was more. So I'd say those two are the most memorable. In all honesty, the best is probably Messi in 2011 at Wembley. But in terms of just wow moments that I'll never forget, it was Peter Weir number one, Wayne Rooney number two, Messi number three. Ian, can you pick one? Uh, yeah, I didn't get the call up for this project, but um, it's ridiculous to be honest. Ridiculous. <laughs> um, uh, but uh, yeah, well, um, actually, yes. Um, uh, and this may surprise you because sometimes he's criticised, and sometimes by me. Neymar in that astonishing Barcelona comeback against um, Paris Saint Germain, what 2017, when they were they had a, a four goal deficit from the first leg and won six one. At camp now, it was his leadership. He he absolutely took hold of 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 that team and made them believe um, in the in the possible. I mean, he was immensely skilled as well. He was in the referee's ear occasionally, but but um, that was that was really that was why Neymar is you know is is one of the great outstanding uh, talents of his generation. And you know, regrettably, we don't always see that. But this this really was. Uh, Neymar in Excelsis, and of course it you know it it changed the shape of football because PSG then uh, triggered his enormous buyout clause that summer because they said right this this is the footballer who wins the Champions League you know the economics of the game have never been the same since and 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 uh, sadly Neymar has has perhaps not been the same since often enough but but he was he was he was magnificent that night Hugh how about you. Yeah, um, I mean, for me, my personal one is Roy Keane against Juventus, which is obviously uh, laid out in the piece. But um, 
you know, was still that era of year after year, Manchester United, you know, basically being the team for England that flies the flag in the Champions League. And it was always incremental steps. Can they go one further? Can they go one further? They'd put in big performances against big teams. Hadn't always gone through. There was always a leg away from home, maybe, that was going to be the one that was going to cost Manchester United. But um, yeah, Keane basically dragged Manchester United through that tie. And in, in that game in particular was sensational, obviously, as we all know. It you know, probably went down as his greatest 90 minutes, but um, certainly very, very memorable for all Manchester United fans that were around, obviously, at that time um, and watching, you know, basically take on the Juventus side. And, it, you know, there were a few games like this, you know, we got past Barcelona as well well and it was like wow did Manchester United really do that and that's what it felt like against Juventus and there are a few good performances very good performances on that evening but um but yeah Roy Keane's leadership I think shone out so yeah it has to be that really I can't think of another that really really stands out Thierry Henry quite a few times probably for Arsenal uh over the years uh in European competition maybe against Real Madrid nonchalantly dribbling through towards the corner and Scoring that individual goal is just incredible. So maybe maybe something like that. But um, but yeah, I mean, for a Man United fan, it's got to be Kino. So there you go. Um, gentlemen, been a pleasure to catch up and speak about Europe. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you all for listening as well. Make sure you check us out on Monday. Uh, the game will be out, of course, on Monday. So make sure you pick up a paper then or make sure you're subscribed online, thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. Another beak. Big weekend of football ahead of us, including the FA Cup quarterfinals. We'll be back on Monday to react to all of that. We'll see you then. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.